Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show, where I interview experts from different fields to connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is an innovator, super connector and author. She's the founder and CEO of the NY Collective. In our conversation, we touched the power of being a super connector, her rough diamond framework, fearlessness and how to innovate in large companies. Please welcome to the show, Nicole Yershin. Hello, Nicole. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, good. Thank you for having me, Jens. Great to have you. It's going to be exciting because you have a lot of things and a lot of similar connection ideas and innovation background like I have, but as well, uh, a wealth of knowledge. Um, I, w I want to learn from you, let's say. <laughs> Thank you. It, I, I'm really looking forward to it. So before we go into innovation and, of course, your wealth of knowledge, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you and how did you get to where you are today? Okay. I'm Nicole Yershin, and um, I've been around a long time. It's been quite a journey. And I always uh, kind of gravitate towards people who I know have been on similar journeys or, you know, difficulties, mavericks, disruptive personalities, um, the troublemakers, as Steve Jobs said. But I, I kind of started my working life um, in the late 80s in advertising with a company called Gold Greenies Trot. And a big mentor of mine was Dave Trot. And he's written some amazing books and writes great blogs. So if anyone is out there, um, go look him up, Dave Trot. He's great. And I was his head of traffic and traffic within an ad agency. So it was kind of like one of the best, the top agencies of its time means that you chase things up. Things don't go over budget. The right people see it doesn't go out of the door until it's been signed off. You don't have a, a blank space on a TV ad, you know, et cetera. So from doing all of that in quite a, a, a difficult agency culture, um, I then went on to another company called Simon's Palmer. And I did a, a similar kind of role, but it was more creative services. So very much the doing arm of uh, and the internal runnings of, a, of an agency. And I got this reputation of being a bit of a fixer. So it, it didn't really matter kind of what was going on. You know, we need to move into a new building. We've just merged with another company. Nicole, can you do it? Uh, it, it, it kind of ceased to, to matter that I was in this box and actually I could do anything. So as I think Elon Musk refers to people like us as expert generalists or, or people that kind of connect dots, super connectors, because we make shit happen. 
So I was nine years at Simon's Palmer and they allowed me to have um, my two kids there and go back on a three-day week, even though I was paid for on a five-day week. They said I could do more in three days than most people could in five. So that was the start of me pushing the boundaries of what people talk about now. You know, why do we have to work from home or why can't we work from home? Why can't we do things differently? So I've always kind of pushed those boundaries. And then I got a phone call from the chairman of um, Ogilvy at the time and the CEO who said, I've got a problem. I mean, that's what I love most when people phone and say, I've got this problem. Uh, and then I'm able to kind of uh, be that conductor of an orchestra to pull in all the relevant things that would answer their problem um, by, by kind of pure osmosis of connections, I guess. And he said, you know, I've, I, it's, I'm at Ogilvy. It's a huge company. I feel like, you know, there's, it's working at the civil service. There's paper everywhere. I have no idea what is happening. Can you come in? And just bring us into the 21st century, move us from an analog to a digital world. I, that's my only brief I have for you. So uh, that was in 2000. And um, I always had, from that moment on, amazing backing at that level. It's almost like they didn't really understand what it was that I was going to do. And I didn't really understand. I couldn't do a PowerPoint. But it, it evolved once I was able to audit um, how they were functioning. So in the early days, it was proper kind of business transformation, workflow systems, finance systems, digital asset management systems, digitizing their archive, going back to the 50s, um, starting to do digital delivery, get rid of tapes, get rid of couriers, have people call me up to say, where's my tape? Me have to say, sorry, I haven't got it for you. You have to go to your post house and pull it down. People screaming at me, you're going to make me miss my air date. So I had all of that to contend with in the very early days. And the IT guys used to call me the thick user because if um, if I could use it, then anyone could use it. And I took that as a compliment as a, a very early stage UX person <laughs> because, um, you know, it, it was just intuitive that if, if I if I could use it as a thick user, then I, it, I was able to then um, help the others within the organization understand it and uh, take hold of a new way of working digitally and and not resist it. So I kind of cover all of those difficult stories in my book when it comes to implementation. I think that's the easy thing is to say, I've got an idea. The hardest thing is to um, make it happen. So I am that kind of person. So in doing all of those things, I then kind of worked out, actually, there's all these other things happening while I was doing the implementation of, of moving them from to a digital world. You know, there's gaming and mobile and social and AI and VR and behavior change and big data and 3D printing. And, and I thought, well, we don't know any of these things. How can I create maybe a hub, like an innovation lab that understands all of these things that are happening in the world? Who's good at these things? So I developed semesters of learning in probably 2004 um, and it worked all the way through until I left in 2016. And it was picking two topics a year to learn intensely. So my first one was streaming. Uh, so we learned as much as possible in six months about streaming. And that was, yeah, 2004. So when you look at Netflix now, we were really ahead of the curve. And then you learn about it, you then attach it to business, you find a client that has a problem where streaming could fix it, you implement it, you say to the TV department, we're going to do a live stream, 
that's going to go to 22,000 desktops in 19 countries in five languages. They say, no, I'm not. I only do TV. I say not anymore. And we implement it. And we have a, a, a viable case study of doing it. So therefore, we've seen who is out there, attach it to business, implement it. And at the end, we have a lab day for 500 people and um, learn, put all the learnings into one place. And then we move on to the next. So there will always be two semesters of learning every year. So you can imagine my black book and the learning that was uh, kind of achieved throughout um, the 16 years that I was there. And that kind of was my time at, at Ogilvy. I did lots of other things with diversity inclusion. So I, I created a scheme called the Rough Diamond Scheme, which is the title of my book, which was to move Ogilvy from always hiring white middle class Oxbridge educated and start looking at people with a diversity of thought. So I wasn't at that time just thinking about kind of the color of people's skin. I was thinking that they just have different lifestyles, even mm. different thought processes, um, kind of divergent thinking. So um, I created the Rough Diamond Scheme. And I remember at the time, the chair, the CEO said, this isn't what I think the lab should be doing. It's not what I think you should be doing. And I ignored him for two years, did it under the radar. And he came to see me and said, oh, I, I hear you've got, you've been doing stuff with Ravensbourne. I've just had lunch with the Dean of Ravensbourne. I said, yeah, we've been doing like this amount of stuff, like tons of work. And we put in, implemented the scheme. And he said, that was a really good idea of mine. Uh, so it was, um, it was good to have his backing, their backing. There were a lot of people that I did get uh, backing from. And there were a lot of people that were naysayers. And it was just trying to navigate those storms um, to, to enable growth and change and moving forward. Um, right now, I so I left Ogilvy in 2016. Thought I would get another job because I've always been an employee. I've always been an entrepreneur, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit within a very large company. But every interview I went to and they said, oh, we really need you, really need a head of innovation and I'd start to say what it is they needed. And they would then say, oh, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> well, I kind of almost found myself unemployable within that space. So I had to kind of create my own business, which is the NY, NYC, which is NY being me, not New York. Just happened to have those great initials. And, um, and I set up um, the NY Collective. And it has been operating for five years now, lots of different projects I guess the projects are so diverse because I'm able to put my hand to so many different things mm. so even though you know I know enough to be dangerous about pretty much everything but I'm very open and honest and transparent in that I don't know um, how the you know the detail and that's where I pull in those experts and and connect them so like a conductor of an orchestra I guess yeah. great and I had, yeah I had two kids as well so I'm a mum they live now home alone because I moved out and left them at the family home. They're 26 and 24 and they're loving life because, and I really like the way that it was done that way round because kids now can't afford um, properties. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that's me. <laughs> Great story. And, and especially the ending. Yeah. So it, it, it's not that my kids moved out. I moved out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. I have so many topics we need to talk about. Okay. Uh, or we can dive into, but let's, let, let's, let's have a look. We definitely need to go into the book, but we take that later. Let's yeah. start with 
innovation in large organizations. Mm. You you mentioned uh, the no-sayers, and I always talk about it's like the internal immune system is fighting against the innovators in an organization. Yeah. It's like what a are your post. exactly? What what are your experiences of uh, maybe stories of of how you have experienced that, and as well how you overcome that? Yeah, that's a really good question because. I think I had a lot of learning to do myself in, in that. So um, I did have a life coach um, uh, through some times when I was at Ogilvy. And she was amazing because I would, you know, I, she said, we really need to get you out of your comfort zone. I said, I'm always out of my comfort zone. I go to places. I know no one. I know nothing. I connect the dots. I bring them in. She said, no, but that's your comfort zone. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, so what's not my comfort zone? She said, well, let's take how you go about change. If you're a tank, for instance, and you're in this tank and you need to get to the other side, you would, you know, what would you do? I said, I'd just keep moving forward real quick and get to the other side. She said, but what about all the things you're trampling, you know, the flowers underneath? And do you ever give a thought about, you know, them or or, or how they might feel or or you know, how many people come along with the ride? I said, well, all the people that kind of uh, understand the need for change. She said, but it might be that there are other people that understand the need for change, but just can't. And there's many reasons. And she really opened up my thinking to empathy. Hmm. And then I started on that route with my team of, of implementing um, reviews based on uh, emotional intelligence. So therefore understanding, you know, one of my Uh, team was really not great in the mornings when she was coming in and I just thought oh my God, what's wrong with her now and if she basically couldn't get up in the mornings early mm. so when it was the Olympics we had to stagger all of our working times because we were in Canary Wharf and the Olympics were going on in East London mm. and so I said well Shannon why don't you do 11:30 starts every day and then and she was a different person and we just kept it We just kept that she would never come in early and she would always, and she, it was, and so we started implementing and understanding, you know, I know everyone now talks about empathy and, but we were doing it then because we could see and understand that there was a sea change in technology and technology allowed for you to do your work pretty much from anywhere. So it was just a case of trust. Um, and, and that's why I know if you have a good leader, you're able to do these things. And if you, if, if you don't have those leadership qualities and you're, you're promoted above your station or you're promoted because you keep bringing money in, you're not going to be able to lead your people in that kind of um, open, honest way. So there were lots of lessons I learned along the way to work much better with the naysayers. There are still the naysayers that really don't want it. And that's fine. There aren't, there are more who are positive and I would work with them and they would come on board after. Yeah. Or not, but I wouldn't have sleepless nights um, waiting for them. <laughs> how, how do you do this now with, with your clients? Because I guess whatever project you do, there will be always like people who are, it's all about change. Like when you, when you are brought in, it's most likely to change something in the yeah. organization. How, how do you support your, your clients with that? Um, by just being honest and open. So I have a client that I work with at the moment and I said to the finance director, uh, the money is not all going to come through me as the conduit 
for all of the work that I'm doing for you right now. So that we're working with maybe 12 different companies. So I said, um, I'll help negotiate and, and uh, help you work out kind of budgets, etc. But you have got to now um, change in that you're going to pay these small businesses direct with yeah. whatever their um, invoicing um, says. So if they want paying in one week, when the minute they invoice you direct, nothing comes through me. I don't make any money off the back of it. I actually take a retainer, which kind of gets rid of any of those kind of awkward conversations or or, or mistrust. Yeah. So I said, you work direct and they'll invoice you and you pay them uh, within a week. And so he has got into the habit as a finance director of not holding on to those pennies and making sure that those businesses thrive and don't go under because of cash flow. So that's a change. Uh, can you do that with large organizations? Um, more difficult, but if you have good leadership, then um, I, I do think that you would be able to, yes. Yeah. And I think that's that's something as well in my experience, how important leadership is. We have had, was it yesterday? Yes, yesterday I've had uh, one of my podcast episodes, which is the Innovation uh, Breakfast Club episode. And mm -hmm. we talked about with uh, three guys on what is the future of organization. We always came back of there need to be fundamentals that need to be right. And that mm -hmm. leadership was always part of that. Because yeah. if, if you, the leaders can make or break it, doesn't matter what the business is about. Yeah. I mean, I'm also a big believer in, um, in holacracy and, um, and, you know, within the, when I had a, it was a small team for the innovation labs. It, no one was the boss of anyone. Mm. And again, with doing the emotional intelligence testing, you understood that my weaknesses were someone else's strengths. So it was just me coming clean with understanding um, and a strong sense of self of understanding I'm never going to be good at that. And I think that's what doesn't help people within organizations in that when you have an HR review or these 360 reviews that you know, they used to spend forever filling out those bloody forms. And when you have a review, they say, what can you be better at? But actually, they're never going to be good at that. So don't make them feel bad that they can't get better because that's just not their thing. Hmm. You're just not understanding their strengths and weaknesses. And therefore, you're not asking them to truly be honest with their strengths and weaknesses. Because only when you can do that, can you, can you start to really run it as a team properly. And that's so important specifically if you go out of the normal work where it's more about okay how do we take the business to the next level how do we innovate how do we find out a new business model whatever adapting new technology it's it's super important that you have these structures yeah um i, I just see and maybe you can reflect on that i just see that still a lot of companies struggle with this as bigger they get as more they struggle with this autonomy of different team members and different teams specifically like yeah. the, the innovation team is the bad, bad, bad example in, in a lot of organizations. Well, I think a lot of the time they're measured on the wrong thing, aren't they? They're mm. only measured on um, bringing financial gains. So therefore, if you, you know, when, when I was doing the, the lab, I used to have six measures of success and I used to not just measure on revenue, but reputation retention of existing staff, recruitment of new diverse talent, relationships and responsibility giving back. Yeah. So um, I had lots of different ways to measure 
that wasn't just make more money and what are your numbers this quarter, which puts a big pressure on people. So do they start out as not empathetic? I don't think they necessarily do. But I think the pressure of making those numbers does something to people. Yeah. Someone said yesterday, like, tell me what you measure and then tell me and I will tell you how I will behave. Which yeah. is literally taking exactly that. You can measure the wrong thing and the whole business goes into the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Love love it. So I think leadership is, is, is an interesting aspect. I would like to bridge that to your connector uh, capability, if we say it like this. Yeah. Because I'm... <laughs> I'm I, that's maybe something we have in common is like yeah. having a lot of relationships where you can tap into and like connect people and say hey maybe you should talk to yeah how, how do you do that and what is like this this essence for you well it's totally altruistic hmm. I'm not getting anything back from it I'm not saying okay if I make this connection then you give me x back it's just for the love of doing it because we want to make things happen and affect change and get things done. And the easiest way to do that is connect the right person to the right, to the person that's going to solve their problem. And we do that, well, I mean, I, I speak, I'm speaking for everyone, but I, I, I do that because it just is a natural instinct. It's just part of my makeup. Uh, so therefore, and again, it's that going back to understanding self, um, of what makes you you it's something that just comes naturally that to move things along um to, to for there to be progression for there to be change because if you don't connect then nothing happens and you just keep the status quo but if you're constantly looking and curious and seeing who is out there what is out there who's doing something different you really like that you didn't like this you're open-minded, you don't keep in the same circles. Um, you, you're, you know, I, I think what happens is you just naturally then connect dots, curious people do. Right. Was there already something you have felt in your whole life or was it something you discovered o over time? I think I discovered over time because I was so generous with my time at Ogilvy especially so uh, Ogilvy, when I started the semesters and I was seeing 10 to 15 different companies every single week, all of the startups or whoever was coming in to see me, uh, and I'd have this reputation, you know, oh, you know, Nicole at Ogilvy. And uh, I mean, if you could be anywhere and anyone would just uh, know me because I had this reputation of listening to people coming in, mm. talking to me and showing me what it is that they were doing. And even if I, and I was very open and honest, and I said whether it was good, bad, indifferent, I gave them really great feedback. It was kind of Dragon's Den before Dragon's Den. Um, but I was able to say, listen, it might be that I've got something next week, or I might see you. I mean, there was one person I met at an event that I went to in Manchester, and I really loved his soundscape that he put on in um at this event. So every time you clicked a lanyard with someone, this amazing soundscape went on at this museum of moving image in, in science and industry in Manchester. So I took this guy's card and I said, I really like it. And I'm not really sure how that would be relevant. And then I was doing a semester on um, mobile phones. Mm -hmm. And one of the creatives came to me and said, oh, I've got this really weird idea for Fanta 
which is where you uh, use the getting kids off of street corners with this mosquito sound. And it's a sound only they can hear and adults can't. If we were to do that with Phantom and build a mobile app and that they could speak to each other, create a language that only they could hear and adults couldn't. So it started to be this very subversive thing. So I said, oh, I know exactly the right person to speak to. And I got in touch with him and he said, oh, no, I don't want to work with agencies. They, I won't say what he said about agency people. See, I didn't have that reputation. So mm. he said, but I will work with you. I said, I, I promise that I will make this painless and we all want the same thing. And, it, and we've never done it before and we don't know whether it's going to work. And it's truly innovative idea. And um, and we all worked together, a very small team. And we did it for Fanta. They ended up putting the website um, on all of the Fanta cans. And I think we stopped counting at like the millionth download. Huh. So I couldn't have planned that. And that was six, five years later since I met him yeah. uh, that I remembered. And that's how powerful Connecting Dots is. But not all finance teams or leaders can measure that power. Yeah, it's absolutely see that. So I, I feel that there's a lot about the personal interaction. So yes, there, there might be a business interaction, but in the end, it's the at least for me, that's the case. It's like, yeah. the, it doesn't matter where I work, if now working my own business or like a couple of years back working in the large corporation, it's the personal interaction, the, mm. this liking each other, that's that's the connecting factor in, in my world. Yeah. How, how is that for you? 100% is the trust hmm. because you can't bring someone in if you don't trust that they're going to be able to do it because you can't do it. So you have to, trust that that someone else can do it especially if it's never been done before hmm. because if it's otherwise you lose your reputation and people just say oh yeah it's never going to happen but if they know you've got hold of it they know that um there, there's a, a an immediate trust so in seeing all those people for the semesters of learning i got to be able to build up a really good trust with people um and and a reputation and honest speaking, um, creative, but uh, not someone that was going to, you know, I will always make sure I respond to an email. I'll always make sure I respond to a LinkedIn or if someone's taken the, that has been decent enough to reach out, I'll be decent e enough to uh, respond, whoever yeah. it is, even if it's sales on LinkedIn, which is, I'll just cut and paste a reply that I do to everyone. And, and at least the person, if there is a person at the other end, doesn't feel so shit about their day. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of, uh, go back then to empathy, go back to leadership. And, um, and I don't think that level of care is, is taken uh, in general. Do, do you have a system built up for yourself where, where you kind of keep all the different people in, in, inside of a digital or physical thing where you, It's like you, you can literally, ah, there was a person with this, this, this to find yeah. them again. I think that's maybe my superpower because I'm just able to, a, a spark will ignite and I'll remember. Um, and as long as I've connected with them on LinkedIn yeah. and uh, then I'm able to remember something about them remember where I've met them. And as long as I'm able to then reconnect on LinkedIn, then I, then I do. Yeah. But I don't, I don't do it lightly. 
I, I won't, you know, go spamming people. If there is a very specific thing, then I will reach out and I'm not going to uh, use up all my favors just for the sake of it. Yeah. So it means something. It's quite interesting because I, I often get asked, like, how can I learn this? Mm. from 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 others and i think yes there are a couple of techniques you can learn but in the end it's like like you mentioned already is this curiosity into other people yeah if you don't have that it's like it's not going to be authentic i think you can start building it now i mean ravensbourne um who i've been i'm an honorary fellow and i've been kind of working with them a lot over the years they're starting to develop some great creative problem solving courses that are more hands-on and not so academic and i think those kind of things can help you know when i'm looking i'm working with a company with uh, looking at the apprenticeship levy in england where the government it's a tax efficiency for you to be able to train your staff or your apprentices but basically it really is continuous learning hmm. um, but not the, the 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 usual standard tried and tested that are easy to just, you know, for an HR person to just say, yeah, I'll take 10 of those, but really start to look at the person, look at the courses that they could do where they can continuously learn and especially creative courses, because I think that mind shows a real knack for problem solving. Yeah. yeah. What is your view on generational exchange in organizations and the power or not power of it? Yeah, I love that. I've just, I did something at the beginning of the year and I'm still working with them with the Young Vic where we created a mentorship program and I was, I mentored the mentors who were then going to mentor the mentees, mm. but the mentees were chairman, chair people of companies or very senior and the mentors were the Young Vic actors, actresses, you know, people who were probably in their from anything from 18 to 30. Yeah. And it was so interesting when I then, you know, they did three months in and then I go back to them to how, you know, how are you doing? And all of the mentors were all suffering from imposter syndrome <laughs> uh, because their feeling was, what can I offer someone uh, with all that experience? They just couldn't get their heads around it. But yet the, the mentees were loving it we're loving that alternative viewpoint. So it's it's a really nice little sweet spot, I think. I mean, the ad industry, not so good because they keep firing people of over a certain age. Yeah. So they're never going to have that beautiful ex uh, value exchange of knowledge. Yeah, but I it's think- It's a powerful thing, um, you know, having that change of mentor and mentee where, that uh, turns it on its head. Yeah. And the importance is, I, I believe, is this learning opportunity. Because if you have very, very senior people, they have spent tremendous amounts of learning time in organizations, in different organizations, most properly. And the youngsters coming into the organization, they are grown up in a completely different world. We just yeah. take digital first right now. Like, I still remember the time without mobile phone. Yeah. <laughs> But if you, if you, my daughter is four now, when she's starting to work someday, if she ever will, I have no idea. Um, she, she has no idea that there was a time without mobile phone, without internet. And most probably yeah. then at that time already, Web3 is already old. 
I, I think it's really important to, um, when you get people like us, the easiest things for middle management to do is, I don't understand what she's talking about, or I don't understand what these youngsters are talking about, or Gen Zs, Zs, or what Zs, or whatever, um, and poo-poo it. But if you have that curiosity and open-mindedness, and that goes then back to leadership, yeah. then you're not, um, and maybe you're measured on, do one amazing thing a year that someone else has come up with, rather than just saying, no, we've always done it like this, and so do as you're told. And that was a recipe for disaster for my son at school, uh, where the teachers said, no, you do it, um, you know, sit down and shut up, and I don't want to hear from you in eight hours, and he couldn't manage it. Um, which is kind of why I was inspired to do the Rough Diamond program, because mm. what happened to all those kids who were expelled from school, who just couldn't sit down and shut up for eight hours, which really is me as well. It, within large organisations, I'm always, well, what about this? And how come? And have you seen this? And uh, when you're questioning things and someone's busy, they just don't want to hear it. Yeah. Let, let's go into the Rough Diamond. So... Before we go into the book, explain a little bit of how did you came to exploring the rough diamond? How do you call it? Concept? Yeah. Framework? Um, yeah. And then how, how and why did you put it into a book? Well, it came about because I was looking at new within Ogilvy at the time. And because they were always hiring the same people, they all thought the same. And there was one answer and it was at the end of the book and everyone knew that answer. And I, I wanted... <laughs> And so, you know, I'm talking about 3D printing or, I don't know, stuff that's never been done. I, I want to, I just needed that kind of diversity of thought. And I felt because of the issues I was having with my son at school, it just made me think those are the kind of people I want. I want people like my son who are a pain in the ass. I want that level of thinking. Yeah. Um, that's going to be really good for us moving forward, especially in the lab. So I partnered with a company called Ideas Foundation who worked with schools in Hackney, Tower Hamlets and Greenwich and said, can you send us all the kids about to be expelled? Um, and we'd take maybe five or six of them five times a year. And one of my team was um, kind of had a, a real love of, of wanting to do this. And so we would then you know, send a note round saying the kids are in and they would have access to, I don't know, 2,000 people and all these different accounts that were being worked on and had access to seeing a space they didn't even know existed because usually it's nepotism that works. You know, someone's son or daughter or aunt or uncle or these kids never get, you know, their uncle maybe is working at Tesco's or something. So it was getting their eyes opened. It was then having them see why don't you keep with tertiary education and go when you're, you know, 16, go to Ravensbourne or, or school communication arts. So that was my next level of it. And when you finished your second year, come back to us and we'll interview you um, to be part of the Rough Diamond program. Mm -hmm. So we'd interview maybe 60 or 70 of them and handpick about five of them. They'd do 10 weeks in the summer. We'd pay them London living wage because I didn't want them to say, I can't afford to come into town and I've got, you know, because the it's so expensive. Mm. And so we had to think about that. We also then said in the September, when you go back for your last year, you have to teach the teachers because I was fed up with the teachers saying what industry wanted and they hadn't worked in industry for 30 years. 
So that was the deal. They came back to us again at Christmas for two weeks, at Easter for two weeks, and then we'd look to employ them in weird and wonderful positions. So I'd go up against HR and say, you know, I want to hire one of my um, rough diamonds uh, to be a creative lab technologist. They said, well, we don't have that down on our, our list. You know, well, what is it? I said, I don't know. I'm just going to make up the job spec now <laughs> because it's only just happened that we've now got an innovation lab and there's all this tech and no one knows how to use it or explain it. And it just so happens that one of our first rough diamonds who is now working in, in innovation at Diageo, and he was the one that was kind of like an Apple genius. And he was able to speak to people to say, well, this is what AR is and this is how it works and this is how you could use it. And, and so it was just literally just going up against authority all the time to create this framework. Mm. Um, and it really annoys me now when people say we need a head of diversity and inclusion. I say, no, you don't actually. You could all do it within yourself. I could find you your person within and I can help you and handhold you to create this framework where you can find homegrown talent and it will save you with search. It will help you giving back. It will really change who you're employing. And they say, oh, no, that we don't want to do that. <laughs> so it's um, it's an issue, isn't it, at times? But there are those certain people who, who say, yes, I do want to do that and help me. Yeah. But so I think that's, that's how that came about. That's maybe something we have learned in, in, in the pandemic as well. A lot of organizations went back to local um, yeah. with supply chains and all of that thinking. Exactly. It's even, even I just I moved back inside the pandemic to a very small town in Germany. Um, and it's so far behind in a lot of things if they would have focused on getting the youngsters into into places and exploring things, it would be completely different. Yeah. But I think it's it's like you said, it's leadership, governance in organizations and then politics. Yeah. <laughs> Which... Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, I kept thinking I was going to get fired every year and I lasted <laughs> 16 and a half years. So it happened in the end where they closed down the lab, but it was a new leader. She was just put into that position as CEO. And I'm sure if you were to ask her, she probably will say she did a good job because it meant that she kept all these other people afloat. Absolutely. But she obviously saw in a spreadsheet that the lab was taking up this amount of money with desks, with Macs, with or laptops or Booper or pension or whatever the hell, uh, space. Um, and she just thought, okay, I'm going to put a cross through that figure hmm. without even understanding the... Um, the value and i think the her only value was monetary and short term i mean and short term yeah if, if you look into i have discussed it today i feel in the moment a lot of organizations are they have been short term before but now it's the short term of short term yeah <laughs> and i i understand that so it's not that i don't understand it's yeah. like we're Companies are under pressure with with the pandemic. They might have lost a lot of revenue, income, mm. and profit. But in the end, if you don't focus on the long run and do things straight away, exploring things that are future relevant, it's even mm. worse if you just focus on today. Takes us back to leadership again. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a vicious circle. Yeah. So how did you how did you bring that into the book? 
What was the reason of writing that book? Well, it, it's very random, like a lot of the things that I that happen in my serendipitous um, journey. But I wasn't looking to ever write a book. You know, I left Ogilvy. It was the, you know, I loved that job so much. And it was a phase where shit hit the fan. You know, my marriage had broken down. I'd been with him since I was 14, had kids early. And my mum had, um, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. The labs had been closed from Ogilvy. And I was just, it was the moment when the most shit hit the fan in my life. And so at that time, I was thinking, I need to get a new job. I need to pay this huge mortgage from buying the house off of my ex-husband. Uh, and, and I decided to go to this random event called Summit at Sea. Um, and I went to another event called Hatch, which was in Montana, and just thought, I'll do those two events just to replenish me, almost kind of like um, feed me metaphorically. Uh, and and kind of get my head straight a little bit and 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 explore opportunities and I happened to be um at summit at sea and it was like a a combination of Ted meets Davos meets Burning Man it's kind of a really mad (laughs) event and um I met this guy in the jacuzzi and we were chatting and he said who are you and I said I'm Nicole from Nicole like I'm a nobody, I don't have a job. And, and he went, oh my God, you've got some great stories. You really should write them down. You know, you're, you'll be great for, for women um, and, and you'll be great for, you're a woman in tech, you push the boundaries. They say, no, you do it anyway. I think you really should, you know, do a, write that down, write your story down and experiences. And I said, oh no, I'm not a writer. He said, no, seriously, I'm a publisher and I think you should do it. So I came away from there and I said, do you know what? I'm going to write a book. And then my mum passed away. And I said to the to the publisher who was based in California, you know, it's not going to happen. I'm really sorry, but I'm really, I don't know where I am right now. He said, but your mum knew you were going to write a book. So then I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to do this book. <laughs> um, and also the good thing was, is that I was able to freely write my story because I didn't sign anything when I left Ogilvy. Because mm. they want, was this uh, one uh, woman in particular wanted to sell a story that said, Nicole in true entrepreneurial fashion is leaving Ogilvy and we're so sad. And anyone that knows her knows she's always wanted to set up her own company. And I went, no, I haven't. You're getting rid of me and my team. You're closing the lab down. Let's just go with the truth. Let's just go with you can't be seen to be an innovative company if you're getting rid of your R&D facility and, and I'm not going to let you lie about it. So I'm not going to sign any NDAs. I'm not going to take any money. And I left with nothing. Yeah. And that then was even more of an impetus to think, you know what, I, I can write my story. I don't have legal obligations that I can or can't say this or can or can't say that. So I just, um, once I knew I was going to do it and uh, I kind of got into this, you know, into a really good mindset and because I'm a doer, it was seven days a week. Uh, my, biz- my time for writing was kind of four in the afternoon till eight at night. And I just powered through it once I got the chapters down. And I, the reason I called it Rough Diamond was I guess I kind of feel myself as a bit of a rough diamond. Um, so that's why I wanted, you know, I, I felt a, a, an affinity with the title. And so that was kind of how the book came about. Love it.
it's quite interesting. I, I said it in one of the last episodes as well. A lot of innovators I meet on this podcast throughout um, plus 120 episodes now are rough diamonds, like you explained it. Yeah. Myself included. It's like yeah. we don't have a normal corporate path that's like linear. There's mm. always crazy stuff happening, ups and downs and that's maybe something to to look into as well as like how do you get innovators how do yeah. you how do you train innovators in that way where you build that in well i had an interesting session with a large pharmaceutical company at london business school and i got asked to uh, talk to them about entrepreneurship how can you be an innovator within a large company hmm. and to help them and give them tips and tricks etc so I firstly, I said, you know, I don't want to do it at the business school. It's very stuffy. There's only eight of them. Let's do it at Soho House. So I got them around a table and we had gin and tonics and it and relaxed. And then I said, OK, so why don't you start telling me issues you're encountering so I can have an understanding of, of what it's like in you know working in this pharmaceutical company? So all eight people were, were at the same company, but different positions and different countries. So they didn't even know each other. So this first guy starts talking and he says, you know, I, I look forward to seeing how you can even help me because I don't think you can. I've been doing this now for four years. We, me and my team come up with different ideas. We go to our line manager. They say yes, but, and it never happens. Um, I, so I said, okay. And, and it seemed that other people were having similar issues. Yeah. So I said, well, if I can give you a way out of that right now, would that be okay? And they all nodded. I said, so do you all have a budget? And they said, yes. I said, and it's your budget that you control yourself. They said, yeah. I said, can you put a little bit of that budget into one little pot? Um, so all of you put in, say, I know, half a percent of your budget. And it's all now in this one pot that you are all um, looking after. So you're all in it together. It's knocked down the silos. You've all got something that you share that is relevant. Now let's spend the rest, you know, an hour talking about the problems you've all encountered, not just generic for your country or your or your job. Let's then work out um, solutions. And it turned out one of the country's solutions could be could fix some another country's problem mm -hmm. uh, just by, you know, chatting. So at the end of it, we'd worked out problems have encountered solutions they could put in place immediately. The fact that they had a pot of money to do it immediately so I said to them, so there you go, off you go, you know, go in and, and, and implement your changes. And then I had a look of, this is from all of them, a look of fear, and, but also like I'd handed them the crown jewels. And then I got a barrage of yes, buts. Yes, but I, my line manager really does need to see the budget. I said, no, we went through that. You told me it's your budget only. So you can do what you want to do with it. And then I said, you know, phone me if you need help with implementation, because that I can I can really help you with that. And then about three weeks went by, I heard nothing. And then I got a phone call from London Business School to say, can you come back in? There's going to be 50 of this company um, <laughs> in, coming into town. They want you to talk about fearlessness. So I said, OK, so I, I you know, and had dinner with them and, and I gave them a, a presentation, told them that story, didn't tell them it was their staff. Um, just said it was a bunch of people and then lots of nodding and um, had great kind of session with them and never heard from them again. 
that's, <laughs> I think that's a common thing. That's that's why I'm wearing this T-shirt often. It, yeah. It's the hard thing is applying. It. Yeah. It's the easy thing is talking about it so, and making nice plans and strategies and visions and yeah. That's all the corporate things, but it's getting it done in in a quick way. In let's say it's not it, it's like a rough and it's not going to be perfect but it's 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 happening it's going to happen yeah and i don't think that's taught in school no, that's why i talk about this thing i'm doing with class dna and the apprenticeship yeah. levy is that i do think that that will be taught much more um on um it's, it's like if you want something done you go to a busy person don't you yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> But it's, it's, I think it's, I mean, it goes back to leadership, of course, yeah. but it's also, if you're an innovator, you need to lead yourself first. Yeah. Which means you need to push yourself in a different way and maybe go the, the extra mile in a different way where you say, okay, now I take that risk and I just do it. And worst case, I will get fired. Yeah. But it's not all... everyone is into that comfort zone. I think also my mind is on a loop and if I can't close the loop, I, I'm really not, a, a, you know, in a very good way. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to close a loop of, of finishing up with something. Yeah. yeah. Not handing it over, you know, just un, until it's done and I can tick it off my list. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think this is something someone should look into is like, how do you create this fearless? I love that. And in, into future organizations, because yeah. that's, it's so needed, especially in, t in this time right now, if you look into what happened with COVID and the pandemic and the changes and how fast everything is mm. and how fast you need to be able to adapt to things. It's super important that you have the innovators somewhere mm. in your organization who could say, yeah, let's give it, give it to us. We help you. But the pains in the ass, just like with my son at school and the teacher saying, sit down and shut up and I don't want to hear from you, they're not celebrated. No, never. They're seen as a problem. They're getting um, kicked out of organizations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so unless you do have a leader that understands, yes, she's a problem, like I did for, you know, 16 and a half years, that was a long time to keep pushing how I pushed. Um, and for leadership to know that I did something right. Probably I produced stuff, I shipped stuff uh, that they allowed me to um, carry on. And also, I, I, you know, I'd set up a little fund of money by being entrepreneurial, so they wouldn't give me a budget for the labs. So mm -hmm. I went and found one. So I, I, according to the, you know, Rory Sutherland, who is the vice chairman there, I used to pimp him out and I used to say, I said, Rory, can I act as your agent? And because you're such a good speaker and I can um, get you paid for to speak and the money that I get for you to speak comes into my R&D pot. And that's how I funded all the, a lot of the shenanigans and didn't have to ask permission was by getting that little pot of money. And I kept it under 19, under a hundred K so it was like 99,000 so that the WPP auditors never found it. <laughs> <laughs> but the minute that CEO that got rid of the labs took my pot. Of course. It was all over. Because then I, my, I was trying to do something with my hands tied behind my back and have to ask permission as well. 
you know, for me, it was always been um, seek forgiveness rather than ask permission. Yeah. Hmm. Can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, we, we can take it for for another two hours. But let, let's <laughs> let, let's get into the last part of the podcast where I always ask different questions, which are slightly not connected to the rest we discussed. Okay. First question is, if you would have the possibility to work with a project that is impacting every human being on earth what project would you work with and why it will always be education because i think that you can work with youngsters if you start off in the very early days um and allow them to question why you're doing something rather than i told you so Or, or this is how it is, or this is the right answer. So I think that's why I've had, I've always had such a, um, you know, any charity work, anything that I do for, for free has always been around education and, and educating the youngsters. Where will you be in one year from now? And you can answer that personal or business wise. Um. Well, I'm quite. In, I mean, I'm enjoying this little um, lull of of not traveling as much, not being, you know, chasing my my towel as much. I'm just. I, I take each day as it comes, and I don't have any kind of great plans. The the COVID made me stop and look at quite a few things. And one, my dad kept going mad at me for getting my house in order, um, and you know pensions and 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 insurance and all the things that I'd stopped doing once when I left a large corporate mm. I kind of just didn't really put much thought to it so in the last year I've really you know knuckled down and got my head around that space and that actually has really helped me feel cushioned yeah. without realizing it yeah. so um so what will I do next I guess just continuous learning just continuous movement um get more dots on the peloton <laughs> <laughs> yeah health is is the main thing isn't it yeah it's mm. a big one how do you how how and yeah how do you keep yourself informed on topics that interest you what are different yeah. strategies and ways how you do that um seven days a week one hour every day i call it scanning the environment And I will literally start myself in, off in one place. It might be Twitter, it might be LinkedIn, it might be somewhat, you know, I've got various feeds that come through. And then I just allow myself to just go off in really weird directions. I have an understanding of what clients I'm working for. So I'm, I'm working for a car, um, an automotive client. I'm working with an education client. I'm working with a... Um, consulting company a fintech company so i have them in mind when i go off on my scanning environment and then i'm able to serendipitously weirdly enough something comes to me that is very relevant to to the work that i'm doing with them yeah. so that's pretty much what i do and have done for 20 years an hour every day that's cool yeah that's why i love things like twitter i know It can be, I mean, not so much Facebook, but Twitter and LinkedIn and um, and Medium and blogs. 
I'm I'm very inspired by what I see. It's not it's not a gossipy format for me. It's a learning format. How can people connect to you? How can people reach out to you? Well, the lucky thing is there's only one Nicole Yershin. <laughs> so my parents did really well with understanding SEO when they named me. But just I'm, I'm Nicole Yershin on everything, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, my website. So just uh, I'm, I'm quite an easy person to find on, on the web. Yeah. Google. Now so we'll just reach out. I will put your links as well into the show notes so people people can click through straight away. Nicole, thank you very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you and I'm looking forward to stay connected and connecting together in the future. Me too. Thank you so much. What a great chat. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You will find the links and resources in the show notes of this episode. If you would like to support the podcast, the most impactful thing you can do is subscribing to the show on any of the podcasting platforms and give me a review. This will help me to reach more innovators around the world and bring some of you into the show. If you have any question to the guest or want to engage with me, feel free to reach out to me on social media and contact me there. Thanks and see you in the next episode.